Okay, what is the title of the closing sketch? The Wedding. <laughs> wedding. Mm-hmm. Oh, you see, you're the groom and moi am the bride. <laughs> Isn't that a silly idea? Isn't that funny? <laughs> uh, maybe. Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick, we're coming up on the Muppet movie. I should probably start writing. I mean, no pressure. I'm very well acquainted with procrastination. And uh, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing all right. I'm glad the week's over. Before we get started talking about the Muppet show, this is a feat of lunatic daring. We're a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. Check us out on social media at Lunatic Daring on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, lunaticdaring.com, which has our bibliography, our watch list, and all of our episodes. We are currently blowing our way through the Muppet Show season three, two episodes at a time. But we got a couple of, I thought, interesting episodes tonight. I don't know if I loved them, but I thought they were interesting. I I enjoyed both of them. They're, they're standout aspects of each episode that I'm at least one of the things that we've covered tonight is going to make my, my end of season list. There's a number in the second episode that made me laugh. Just just made me laugh <laughs> and made me so happy and kind of horrified my family. Fair. But uh, before we get there, we have to talk about who I believe is at the time of the recording, not this recording, at the time of the recording of The Muppet Show, the most famous guest The Muppets ever had. Let's talk about him. Ready to get started? Let's get it started. It's The Muppet Show with our very special guest star, Liberace. Most of the exposure I've ever had to Liberace is The Muppet Show, but... I can't remember not knowing who Liberace was. It's important to remember, Liberace was, in like the 50s and the 60s and in the 70s, the highest paid entertainer in the world. Vlaju Valentino Liberace was born in West Allis, Wisconsin on May 16th, 1919. His father, Salvatore, was an immigrant from the Lazio region of Italy, and his mother was Polish. Uh... Walter, as his family called him, or Lee was his nickname from his friends that would stay with him the rest of his life, uh, had an identical twin that died at birth, along with two other brothers and a sister. In addition to his job as a factory worker, Liberace Sr. played the French horn in like local bands and, and, and at movie theaters. His mother had once been a concert pianist, and they, so they both encouraged young Walter to explore music since it was apparent that the talent had been passed down to him. The man the world would one day know simply as Liberace before there was a prince or a Beyonce or even really an Elvis, began playing piano at the age of four. When he was eight, he became a protege of the great Polish pianist Ignacy Jan Paderewski. The Depression was hard on the Liberace family, uh, of course, like any, a lot of people. In childhood, he suffered from a speech impediment and as a teen from the taunts of neighborhood children who mocked him for his effeminate personality, his avoidance of sports, and his fondness for cooking and the piano. Liberace gained experience playing music in theaters or local radio, clubs, weddings, and eventually playing cabarets and strip clubs. For a while, he adopted the stage name Walter Buster Keys, but that didn't last long for obvious reasons. By this time, he was already displaying a penchant for turning his eccentricities into attention. His over-the-top, effeminate, flamboyant nature made him very popular with some people and very unpopular with others. He participated in a classical music competition in 1937 played his first requested encore for a crowd in La Crosse, Wisconsin in 1939, and at the age of 20, played the Chicago Symphony Orchestra at the Pabst Theater in Milwaukee, performing Liszt's second piano concerto. 
In the 1940s, Liberace moved away from straight classical music and reinvented his act to be more pop with a bit of classics, or as he used to put it, classical music with the boring parts left out. He struggled for a bit, but by the end of the decade, he was playing nightclubs in major cities across the country. He was different from most pianists who would just kind of sit up there and seriously play their music. Liberace would joke with the audience, take requests, even give lessons live on stage to willing patrons. And he also started to care more about his presentation, the staging, the lighting, the wardrobe. And when it comes down to it, Liberace was all about presentation. Have you ever noticed, ladies and gentlemen, that Every generation has had a particular kind of music they considered all their very own. You know, like now it's rock and roll. Well, when I was a teenager, we had a kind of a crazy thing going for us, too. I wonder how many of you remember the boogie-woogie craze. It was also around this time that he settled on just plain old Liberace as his stage name, and he added a candelabrum to his act, just sitting on his piano, and that would become his trademark. He would also wear a white tie and tail so that he would stand out in larger venues, just like Steve Martin would do 30 years later. We talked about that. I'm going to play that part again so you can all shout hey, okay? He played Vegas a lot. That would eventually become kind of his main gig. By 47, he was billing himself as Liberace, the most amazing piano virtuoso of the present day, which is insanely modest. Uh, he moved to North Hollywood, outside of L.A., and would play clubs there, sometimes for stars like Clark Gable, Shirley Temple. Eventually, his big show in Vegas took off and became his hallmark and made him made it start started making him real money. He performed Madison Square Garden in 1954, where he earned $138,000 for his performance, which would be $1.3 million today, which is a record haul for a single gig. He was name-checked as a sex symbol in the Cordette's 1954 number one hit song, Mr. Sandman. Mr. Sandman. Yes. Bring us a dream. Give him a pair of eyes with a come hither gleam. Give him a lonely heart like Pagliacci. And lots of wavy hair like Liberace. By 55, he was making over 50000 a week at the Riviera Casino in Vegas. He also did many TV appearances on talk shows and the like. He was a huge star, a superstar really, but he also became the butt of jokes for comedians and smartasses all over the world. His flamboyant and yes, effeminate style wasn't for everyone. Despite him being the most amazing piano virtuoso of the present day, most critics slammed Liberace for his actual playing, saying his technique was sloppy, his tempos and rhythms were wrong, and that he didn't do what was on the page, especially when it came to playing the greats, and that he had to make up for it with his garish stage, stage show to distract you from his subpar performance. Liberace responded to this with, I don't give concerts, I put on a show. Around this time, he earned the nickname Mr. Showmanship, and boy, he was a showman. You could say a lot of things about him as a musician, but he was a 
working entertainer. The 15-minute network television program, The Liberace Show, began on July 1st, 1952, but it did not lead to a regular network series right away. Instead, he mounted a filmed version of a local show performed before a live audience for syndication in 1953 and sold it to scores of local stations. And then this ended up taking off and became a syndicated series, and the exposure made Liberace even more popular and even more prosperous than ever. His program was very popular with the ladies, and he would receive 10,000 fan letters a week, many of them romantic in nature. His show was also one of the first American shows to air on British commercial television, where it was broadcast Sunday afternoons by our boy Lord Lou Grade's Associated Television, so basically the same channel as The Muppet Show. He also became a gay icon around this time, and Liberace was the first gay person Elton John had ever seen on television, and he became his hero, which is obvious. Oh, and Liberace wasn't out of the closet at this point. Gay men just, they just knew. Elton John just knew. But he was an international sex symbol, and international sex symbols in the 1950s were not gay. We were a long way from little Nas X. He played Europe for the first time, met the Pope, performed for the Queen. Uh, but in the late 50s and 60s, his career was slumping. But he built his fan base up, back up, by going out and hitting small clubs again and kind of reestablishing his base like a politician. Re-energized, he came back to Vegas, upped the glamour and pizzazz of his shows even more, and started calling himself a one-man Disneyland. He also owned an antique shop in Beverly Hills, a restaurant in Vegas, and published several cookbooks, the most famous being Liberace Cooks, which included recipes for Liberace lasagna and Liberace sticky buns. During the 70s and 80s, his Vegas and Tahoe shows remained big hits, earning him $300,000 a week. Liberace was the highest paid entertainer in the world. Like he was Taylor Swift before Taylor Swift. Liberace made appearances on The Ed Sullivan Show, The Ford Show, Edward R. Murrow's Person to Person, Jack Benny, Red Skelton. Uh, and, and on those shows, he often parodied his own persona. He was in on the joke. A new Liberace show premiered on ABC's daytime schedule in 1958, featuring kind of a less flamboyant, less glamorous persona, but it failed in six months. That's not what people wanted from Liberace. Liberace received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 1960. He continued to appear on television as a frequent and welcome guest on The Tonight Show with Jack Parr in the 60s. And he had these very memorable exchanges with Zsa Zsa Gabor and one one with Muhammad Ali that's fantastic. Well, you, you recite something and I'll make up the music test. Uh, for a change, do the one about you. <laughs> this is the legend of Cassius Clay, the most beautiful fighter in the world today. He talks a great deal and brags indeedy of a muscular punch that's incredibly speedy. The fistic world was dull and weary. With a champ like Liston, things had to be dreary. Then someone with color, someone with dash, brought fight fans a-running with cash. This brash young boxer is something to see, and the heavyweight championship is his destiny. This kid fights great. He's got speed and endurance. But if you sign to fight him, increase your insurance. He was also Red Skelton's 1969 CBS Summer Replacement with his own Variety Hour, taped in London. In the Batman 66 television series, the William Dozier Batman series with Adam West and Burt Ward, Liberace played the dual role of concert pianist Chandel and his gangster twin Harry, who was extorting Chandel into a life of crime. The headquarters of an infamous criminal genius, Chandel. Seems almost too easy with Batman and Robin on vacation. Chandel, love. 
Could it be a trap? Oh, impossible, my sweets. You should have seen the dear commissioner's face. The dynamic duo is away all right. What a break. The one every super crook has dreamed of. They're utterly fooled. Our clever charade at Wayne Manor has put me above suspicion. The episodes of this two-part story arc were the highest rated shows in the history of Batman 66. Of course, in 78, he dropped by The Muppet Show. Uh, television specials were made from Liberace's shows in Vegas and, and things like that and broadcast on CBS. In the 80s, he guest starred on television shows like SNL you know, on a 10th uh, season episode that was, get this Nick, hosted by Hulk Hogan and Mr. T. So I'm guessing it's around the same time Rocky III came out. In 1985, he appeared at the first WrestleMania as the guest timekeeper for the main event. In the past, by the way, back in 55, he had made a movie. He did make a movie called Sincerely Yours, where he played a deaf concert pianist. He had signed a two-picture deal, but Sincerely Yours was such a flop that the studio bought back the contract, effectively paying him not to make another movie. He would only make cameos from then on out. He did record his music. Uh, In 1954, he had recorded like 70 records. And I I think that means singles, not like full albums. Um, And he released several recordings through Columbia Records. His most popular single was his cover of Ave Maria. His final stage performance was at Radio City Music Hall on November 2nd, 1986. It was a smash success. That same year, Christmas Day, he appeared on The Oprah Winfrey Show. It would be the last time he was on TV. Liberace was a conservative in his politics and his faith. He believed fervently in capitalism, but was also fascinated with, like, luxury and royalty. You, you could tell that by his rings on by the rings on his fingers. He kind of dresses like the Pope. But he would also maintain his Midwestern image because that's what appealed to his fan base. In 1956, the Daily Mirror published a column that, in a roundabout way, implied that Liberace was a homosexual. This caused the performer to sue the paper, saying that he was not gay and had never participated in homosexual acts. He won the lawsuit. He also duked it out with the American tabloid rag The Confidential over the same thing. In 1982, Scott Thorson, Liberace's 22-year-old former chauffeur and alleged live-in lover of five years, you do the math on that one, sued him for $113 million in palimony after he was fired slash dumped by the superstar. Liberace denied all of it, and the case was settled out of court. Because Liberace never publicly acknowledged that he was gay, confusion over his true sexuality was further muddled in in the public's mind by his public friendships and romantic links with women. In a 2011 interview, actress and close friend Betty White, goddess Betty White, stated that Liberace was indeed gay and that she was often used as a beard by his managers to counter public rumors about his sexuality. About 25 years ago, you lodged a libel action in England against the gossip columnist who insinuated that you are not the marrying type. We're living in such a permissive world that I don't think anybody really much cares what anybody does behind closed doors. It's not shocking anymore. It's, uh, uh, I think, in the 50s, uh, any uh, publicity uh, along those lines was uh, very daring and, and uh, it called for a defense. In August of 1985, Liberace was diagnosed as being HIV positive. He died 18 months later of pneumonia complications resulting from AIDS on February 4th, 1987 at his vacation home in Palm Springs. He was 67. 
is buried in the famous Forest Lawn Hollywood Hills Cemetery in Los Angeles. Behind the Candelabra, a film adaptation of Scott Thorson's autobiography, debuted on HBO in May 2013. Michael Douglas stars as Liberace, with Matt Damon playing Thorson, in a story centered on the relationship the two shared and its aftermath. Interesting fact that I found, on November 22nd, 1963, is a very important date to remember, on November 22nd, 1963, he suffered kidney failure from accidentally inhaling excessive amounts of dry cleaning fumes and nearly died. He later said that what saved him from further injury, like what woke him up when they got him to the hospital, was that his entourage woke him up to tell him that John F. Kennedy had just been assassinated. He was told by his doctors that his condition was fatal, and so he began to spend his entire fortune buying extravagant gifts of furs and jewels and even a house for his friends, houses for his friends, but then he recovered after a month. <laughs> Before hearing the bio, I didn't have a strong concept of who Liberace was. I'd, I'd heard the name, but I didn't, I didn't even really know what he looked like. He's hard to forget once you see him. Kind of like the Pope. <laughs> he dresses a little like the Pope. <laughs> So this is Muppet Show number 309 with special guest star Liberace. Produced mid-April 1978, came out in uh, January in the UK of 79 and October of 78 in the US. And this is uh, directed by Philip Casson. We got a couple episodes here by Casson. First off, what did you think of him, though? He seemed friendly. I know he's not really a guest star. There's so... On one hand, I think he played well with the Muppets. We've seen, especially in the earlier season, uh, or in the earlier seasons, we'd seen people that didn't play as well with the Muppets. They were a little bit stiff. He wasn't stiff. I think he was just enjoying himself. Like, they told him he had an evening to play and have a little bit of fun with puppets. And he's like, this is a great way to spend time. Let's do it. Yeah, this is a weird episode because instead of, like, spreading the guest star throughout the episode, although he makes appearances, they just give him the last, like, 10 minutes. <laughs> right? And, and they keep talking about, like, the backstage story in this episode is that a well, part of the backstage story is that Liberace is going to have uh, going to put on a concert. Um, so they don't even talk about it in terms of numbers. It's just Liberace is going to give a concert, which is what he did. Right. Well, actually, no, according to him, he didn't do concerts. He did shows. But you know what I mean? Jim Henson did say he was shocked at how bad of a pianist Liberace was. <laughs> yes, that's in the that's in the Jones biography. The sense I get from him is an exceptionally talented man who was a piano prodigy. Once he kind of figured out the secret to his success, though, his success wasn't about how good of a piano player he was. And he just lets that part atrophy a little bit because that's not what's making him the money. Mm. And he was, you know, and, and, and there's a moment in this episode that seems very out of place that we'll get to where you sh it shows Liberace likes his money and he wants you to know that he's got money. Liberace? Uh, Liberace? 30 seconds to curtain, Liberace. So we have our cold open. And uh, Liberace thanks Scooter. He says, you know, Scooter, I've got piano-shaped rings and piano-shaped swimming pools, which he did have all those things. Um, but I've never had a piano-shaped house pet before. And then there's a, a Muppet that's basically a piano with a mouth. So did you notice the opening had two new shots in it for the chorus line? I don't think I caught that. Now, it doesn't apply to next week. That's what's strange. So this week, we had we got two new chorus lines in the opening theme. We got one that was the, the female one was Mousy, a chicken, Lydia, a chicken, and Janice, and then somebody I couldn't make out. And then the male one was Strange Pork, a whatnot, George, Blue Frackle, Green Frackle, and another whatnot, but no Jim Puppet. It was like a reshot thing. Now, I don't know if that's going to be something that they add later in the season and they just kind of it just kind of gets shifted up to this. I don't know how, but it doesn't show up next week, but they, I, they, I swear to you, they're two different shots. Very strange. 
Gonzo has a hard time with this horn, and so the horn plays a fanfare by itself, which is done before, I think. I think so. So we open, weirdly, we open in the canteen, which is kind of strange. Animal's there, Floyd's there, but Kermit basically comes down to tell everybody... Excuse me down there for a second. Uh, I'd like all of you to be on your best behavior tonight because we have a real artist on the show, Liberace. Liberace! Okay, good. Now listen, uh, later on, Liberace's doing an entire concert for us, so I'd like some dignity on the show. So for a second, that was one of the things that threw me about this episode is it seemed like some of the Muppets have have swapped roles in terms of dynamic because this this was a Sam bit. This is Sam coming out to tell you that you're supposed to stay classy. I think Kermit's nervous, though. Again, giant star, biggest star they've ever had. I think that's what it is, though, right, is that he's just really nervous. This would be I mean, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me. Maybe I'll look them up. But I would not be surprised if this is one of the highest rated Muppet shows ever. I bet it got more numbers than your average episode in the same way that the, his two Batman episodes. Now, Batman was a huge show and still Batman did better when he was on it. And then Kermit runs to the stage, almost trips, gets there, tells everybody that, you know, they're going to give the show. Liberace's going to put on a concert. And then Rolf goes by carrying a candelabra crying. And it's a lit one, too, which always makes me nervous because <laughs> Rolf is a very free, like he's a fuzzy Muppet. But it was so sad. My girls all went, aw, because they love Rolf. <laughs> and by girls, I mean all three of them. Rolf's very lovable. Our opening number. Now, I have a special love for this opening number because the song that Miss Piggy sings, Never on Sunday, is from the film Never on Sunday, the 1960 film Never on Sunday, directed by Jules Dassin, that I happen to love. Oh, you can kiss me on a It takes place in Greece, and uh, and this number has a Greek theme to it. So, yes, I have two thoughts on this number. One, are the pigs just stand-ins for other ethnicities at this point? Like, are they... I think they're just stand-ins for people. Mm. I think they're the humans. Like, I think pigs are the majority now. That'd be interesting. I don't think they're stand-ins for other ethnicities necessarily. It's, it's like other nationalities, but it's always pigs. And like, you'll notice... At least this season, the pigs are kind of filling out all the scenes. They do, but I'm, I'm thinking specifically because we've had two with a Spanish or a, a Latin American bent, I believe. Yeah. Getting ahead a little bit, we'll have a Russian one later, but yes, it does seem like we're just sort of like, we need a stand-in for this, let's bring in the pigs. Also, in keeping on with the theme of Muppet swapping roles, is animals suddenly crazy hairy? Because they're not that different. <laughs> they're not that different. Maybe they're learning they're not that different. The thing is, Animal is just going to be your barbarian, whereas Crazy Harry is the alchemist that just keeps throwing, like, explosives at things. Very different ideologies. I mean, Animal does bowl overhand, so maybe a bazooka could just be a new hobby, but... One of them mentions they, they love bazooki music, and a bazooki is a plucked Greek lute. It is a type of stringed, a Greek stringed instru- instrument that's kind of like a lute. So that's what he was saying, bazooki, and Animal, of course, hears bazooka. And uh, comes out. I, I think, of course, of course, Frank Oz just, you know, plays this to the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, Piggy showing some leg. Showing a lot of leg. Showing a lot of leg. <laughs> She's looking good, though. She's having a good time. There is a part, though, where they just start yelling random Greek words like hummus and tzatziki. Hummus! Hummus! <laughs> 
halfway funny and halfway lazy. <laughs> I, I I would consider I would put this firmly middle ground standard Muppet Show opener. It was a fun piece. So Scooter's complaining that the you know so much for things being classy they got oh because they also it also breaks down in them breaking plates on the ground which I guess is Greek tradition right? I just thought of Thor. I. <laughs> It's the best part of the first Thor movie. <laughs> but Kermit says that's okay, because we have uh, Alfredo and Hildegard, the mop dancers, are going to head on stage to uh, take care of it. So, okay, cool. Then something you don't see very often, a full-size walk-around Muppet comes into the backstage. You don't see that very often. And it's Fletcher the Bird. It's Fletcher Bird, who we've met before. Of course, played by Graham Fletcher. Although I think his voice in this is done by somebody else. Uh, excuse me, I'm looking for... Check upstairs, the dressing room with the star on it. So Graham Fletcher's in the suit, but Steve Whitmire's actually doing the voice. That's the only time uh, Fletcher's ever going to talk. Fletcher's there to audition for Liberace, because Liberace, his final, like, big big number is going to be a tribute to birds. I was waiting for the bio for that specifically, because I wasn't sure if he was sort of like an ornithologist or something. I didn't see nothing about birds, Nick. Nothing about birds. But he's doing a tribute to birds. Of course, Gonzo hears this, and this is a case where you almost hear the whoosh before you see him. Mm-hmm. It's like lightning and thunder. <laughs> Auditioning birds! You hear the whoosh, and Gonzo thri- flies in, and he wants, of course, he's like, well, what about my chicken act? And he wants to audition for Liberace with his chicken act. Whatever that is. Kermit is getting a little frazzled with all this. He wants things to go well. And so he sends Scooter to go get the chef uh, to do his number. And we cut down to the cantina, and I actually thought this joke was funny. I'll give it to him on this one in the cantina, where Floyd wants a fried egg. The chef is trying to plate it. Gladys is there to bring the, the fried egg to Floyd. The chef is trying to plate it, and they're like, chef, you need to get on stage. He goes, oops, and he leaves, and he just puts the fried egg in Gladys's hand. And she comes over and just plops it on the counter in front of Floyd, and then he asks if... That's it, huh? Fried so, honey. Can I have a handful of coffee to go with it? That was a good one. <laughs> that was funny. I mean, Gladys is still very unpleasant to look at. I feel like she's about to take a bite out of someone every time I see her. <laughs> All I'm saying is you should not feed her after midnight. Nope. So we have a, a nice little uh, mix-up cross crossover. What would you call it? Uh, crossover sketch? Hybrid sketch, maybe? Yeah, hybrid. The chef comes out and uh, he's to prepare coffee with a percolator. And it, it's kind of the, the funniest part of this sketch is actually once he turns the percolator on, he doesn't have anything to do. So he just sits there. So whoever's operating him, I'm guessing I don't know who's operating them. It's strange. Like normally I guess it's Jim and Frank, but then who's going to operate Piggy and Rolf in the net when they come into the scene? I don't know. Is this the first time that we've seen the chef without his hat? I think so. Yeah. So the, the chef turns on his percolator and he sits there. He's kind of drumming on the counter and stuff. And it's kind of kind of cute and funny. Uh, and then he turns off the percolator, but he still hears the percolator noise. And he takes off his hat. and He's got a percolator on his head. And then <laughs> Dr. Bob and Nurse Piggy and Janice rush in and they basically do a veterinarian's hospital in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow, Dr. Bob, what's wrong with this man? Oh, I think he has an advanced case of ingrown coffee pot. <laughs> Is it rare? Yes, usually it's found in hedgehogs. In hedgehogs? Surely you've heard of porcupines? <laughs> Making, I'm going to be honest with you, some really bad jokes. They're not there to make good jokes. No, but these are really bad jokes. <laughs> these are, you get to walk a mile to get to these things. 
you know, they're pretty rough. So Dr. Bob has made a house call. Tune in next time when you'll hear Nurse Piggy say... Dr. Bob, shall we get him to a hospital? No, just keep him away from policemen. Why? He'll get a parking ticket. <laughs> but it's a nice little little mashup. It, it, it's a creepy image. I'm going to admit the chef's kind of head on the table at the end. Something out of Reanimator? Yeah, it was a little creepy. It was kind of squished and like, yeah, it, it was really weird. But... But but this is what I'm trying to figure out. We got we got the chef, which is normally Jim and Frank, but then we have Piggy and Rolf, who are also Jim and Frank. They've done that twice this episode, though, because we had Rolf. I mean, he, Rolf didn't say anything, but we had Rolf on stage at the same time Kermit was on stage. Yeah, but these are full performances, is why I was asking. You know, these aren't little things. These are full performances with both the characters. You know, so I'd be curious to see how they who they've got doing what in there. So we go backstage and. Um, Gonzo still wants to get into Liberace's room to show him his chicken, so Kermit's hired a guard to watch that, the door. So that guard looks like your stereotypical Pinkerton? He looks like a Pinkerton. Yeah, like what yeah. kind of operation is Liberace running there? Well, no, no, Liberace didn't. Kermit hired him. Yeah. Remember, Kermit said I had, to, I had to hire a guard for Liberace's dressing room. The uh, Pinkerton is uh, voiced by Steve Whitmire. Liberace ain't using no chickens in his concert. Oh, then maybe he'll see me. He's only seeing birds. There's a moment in the Muppet Family Christmas between Gonzo and a turkey. <laughs> that turkey is voiced by Steve Whitmire. In this, the Pinkerton is voiced by Steve Whitmire, and him and Gonzo talk about Gonzo being a turkey. I'm a bird? <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I'm a turkey. You're not a real turkey. Are you kidding? Have you seen my act? We have a Muppet News Flash. We almost lost him today, Nick. We almost lost him tonight. So the thing is... This could have been bad. The Muppet Newsman is probably one of my favorite Muppets, and I feel bad because I know I'm also going to forget to list him on most of my favorite Muppet lists. But that poor man. Well, he comes in telling you they're going to remodel the Muppet Newsroom, and as soon, like right as it gets out of his mouth, this wrecking ball comes in like Miley Cyrus and smashes through the wall. We almost lost him. I'm just glad he's okay. We get a little uh, snippet with Liberace telling us that uh, he's down to 10 finalists in his bird auditions. And then he just does that smile that he does always. It's like perma smile when he looks at the camera. We get our UK spot. So this might be cut from you. That's a real low cut dress on Peggy. It is. I agree. I was, I was looking at that. I was like, is that on purpose or were they just like out of material? Nick, next week, we're going to be covering the Raquel Welch episode. If this has got you, oh boy, you're going to be clutching your pearls next time. Oh my. Piggy and some other pigs sing a song called, uh, see, this isn't like ethnic, but it's still just a bunch of pigs, right? Mm. Called, uh, I Want to Sing an Opera. It's from a 1911 stage musical called The Siren. I want to sing an opera. I've got that kind of voice. I'd always sing an opera if I could have my choice. I don't know. This one didn't really register with me. It was all right. Yeah, it was all right. Like it's it's one of their inspired by older numbers numbers, and it yeah, it played it more or less straight. It's harder to talk about them when they're played straight. It's like it's the song they sing it. There's a couple of little you know funny interactions in in it. So then we finally arrive at not Liberace's closing number, his closing concert. So what con- the first thing I noticed was that the candelabra was fake. They had like yeah. one of those electric Christmas candle type things. <laughs> well, maybe he's smarter than Rolf. 
They care more about, I mean, obviously they're going to care more about Liberace's safety than Rolf's, but still, someone had access to, I, I can't imagine even in the 70s that that was that expensive. You could be looking out for Rolf. Also, everything about this set, and particularly the way that they've got, like, the muted colored backgrounds and the mist and fog on the floor, makes me think of the storyteller. Mm in in big ways like and everything down to the images that you have of birds flying by and things like that i don't think they looked back to this when they were doing it but it felt nostalgic to your first point i would argue that liberace's clothes are probably more flammable than rolf he probably wears more scent yeah so liberace comes out and i think it's a very funny moment where he opens with chopsticks mm-hmm <laughs> I think he did that in his not in his in his stage act, dude. This is just a very condensed version of his stage act, right? Mm-hmm. So he starts off with chopsticks, and his whole thing, Liberace's whole thing, was that he was a classically trained pianist, and he, you know, he wore he wore tuxes. They were just rhinestone, and he played the classical pieces, but he played them with a little personality, and then he mixed them in with pop music and and, and stuff like that, and that was his whole bit. He was pop classical fusion. And, and, and he kind of shook up the idea of what it meant to be a concert pianist. So the idea that that here's this famous pianist coming out and the first thing he plays is chopsticks, which is, you know, of course, known for being it's not easy to play, but that's one of the simpler pieces Then him and Statler Mordorf get into it a little bit. I can't tell you how much fun it is doing this show. Sure, it's fun doing the show. Mm, try watching the show and see how much fun it is. <laughs> I've heard about you guys, and I'm not going to let you spoil things. I'm going to do something for the first time. I'm going to dedicate an entire concert to all the birds, and I think you'll enjoy it. If we do, that'll be another first. (laughs) Well, listen, you guys, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything. Well, that's one way of keeping us quiet. And then he plays Misty. which is an old jazz standard and uh, I think plays it pretty well. That's when the fog rolls in, right? There's like a, it made, it made me homesick for San Francisco. Reminds me of walking home in like uh, West Portal at like two in the morning. Yeah, that is an entire mood. Anyway, so uh, he, he's playing. My daughter said they look like he was playing in the clouds, which I thought was sweet. And then he transforms into playing Chopin's Nocturne number no. five. And this is when the birds show up, not like the birds, like during Misty, they have some like animated or, or projected birds going on. But I mean, you know what birds I'm talking about, Nick? The eyes yeah. watching birds. Yeah, it, it would have been unsettling, but Liberace seemed completely at home. But it, there's also like, I think I've talked about this in earlier episodes because this isn't the first time we've seen large birds. But that uh, that childhood music or that childhood movie about birds kidnapping kids and trying to turn them into tea is just like seared into my psyche somewhere. I don't believe that movie exists, but I believe it's had such an influence on you. I will send you the trailer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I found, I forgot what it was called for like Just, 10 years. This was strange and long. Enjoyable. It kind but of, long. 
it it reminds me of episodes like the Moomin Chan's episode or the episode that had the guy that was coming on to do the, uh, the shadow puppets where they would be playing with form. But I don't think I think that was something that was just kind of a coincidence. It felt like that because it was a subtle shift. The fact that the the tail end of the show was just hard loading Liberace. You tune into the Muppet Show to see Liberace. You really don't want to see him doing sketches. You want to see a Lib- you wanted to see Liberace do what he does, and what Liberace does is sit at a piano, play songs, and make jokes. And that's what you want to see. And so they just decided, well, let's just give everybody a, Lib- a, a Liberace concert, a free Liberace show. People paid a lot of money to see him perform live. It's probably exactly. What I you're would tuning say in though, for. if he was playing to the camera on each number, it would have felt weird. Like if we if we had the the let's say that we had broken that last part of it into separate segments that we would just come back to where we get to see Liberace at the piano again with a different background, but like just as much missed. I think it would feel out of place. You know, I don't know if this hundred percent worked for me, but I thought it was it. Like I said, the big uh, up front, I thought mm-hmm. it was interesting. This idea of kind of handing it over to him. But again, given the man, that's probably, you know, the right call. But in the middle of it, it does have really one funny joke because uh, Liberace does sing in this. That is one thing that I don't think people really he was very, very well known for. So Sam comes in and tells Liberace, this is, this is a great Pete, tells Liberace like, So far, everything has been very cultural. And that worries me, sir. Well, I thought you liked culture. Mm. I played the Nocturne especially for you. Oh. I dedicated it to the birds. Yes, 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 yes. But oh, I know this show, and I have seen your work too, sir. Because you have now played Chopin, it follows as night follows day that soon you will be wearing a rhinestone tuxedo and playing shameless boogie-woogie. I promise you, Sam... I won't be doing that soon. No. I'm going to do it right now. <laughs> we, we cut, and Liberace now has a complete rhinestone tuxedo on with shoes to match. And he starts playing more upbeat, kind of boogie-woogie, Jerry Lee Lewis type of uh, rock and roll sings a song called five foot two eyes of blue can do has anybody seen my bird <laughs> tall and bright what a sight feathered friends of such a height has anybody seen my bird the song's also known as Has Anybody Seen My Girl? First recorded by the California Ramblers in 1925. You remember the California Ramblers? Of course you don't. Nobody does. Later on, Walter Mondale used it for his 1984 presidential campaign to introduce uh, Geraldine Ferraro, who was the first female vice presidential nominee. And he ends it surrounded by a bunch of birds. At one point, Fletcher does come out. Uh, Fletcher Bird comes out. Graham Fletcher dances. Uh, Liberace dances and sings. So I guess that's something I, I, I necessarily wouldn't expect to see. Oh, and then there's a moment. Sorry, we almost almost missed the, the weirdest moment in the episode where Liberace talks to the audience and he goes, I bet you're looking at my fingers. <laughs> sort of just insulting it. Right? <laughs> oh, before I get started, I just want to explain. Uh, I know perhaps you'll be looking at my fingers and wondering if they're real. They are real diamonds. <laughs> I'm glad you want to see them because let's face it, you bought it. 
because he's got like gems on every finger. He's got a giant piano shaped diamond ring and all sorts of gems and golden diamonds. And he goes, yes, they are real diamonds. And then he goes back to playing the piano. <laughs> it, like, I know it's 1978, but it's the most Reagan era shit I've ever seen. And uh, he's decided he's going to steal Gonzo's chicken act. What I liked about it was having a sense of who Liberace was, but not, you know, I've never like lit up a joint and listened to a Liberace record, right? But having a sense of who he was. (laughs) I'm going to be up. I didn't realize. Like, I just, I knew Liberace was a celebrity. I didn't know why. No, that's fair. That's fair. It's just the, it's just a name that you hear. But I actually enjoyed getting to see just in this little bit, see what he was all about, like what his performances were about. And I can see the appeal. You know, it's not necessarily for me, but I can see the appeal. He straddled this world between classical music and pop music, between the serious and the silly. So, Nick, I watched... Uh, episode 310 three times in the last 36 hours. I'm assuming Marissa Berenson's from somewhere in Europe, right? You know, before I read up on her bio, I was so sure she was French. (laughs) She talks with an accent. (laughs) Kind of, but I think that that's just money. Uh, So I'll start this. Um, Marissa Berenson was born February 15th, day after Valentine's Day, 1947 in New York City. To That's Robert. stunning to me. <laughs> I, I think she was just like upper, upper class New York City, though. Or is she like Madonna? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. There's no period in there where she like lived in London for a few years. She might have actually. She did do a bit of modeling, but we'll get to that in just a second. Her dad was Robert Berenson. He was a career diplomat and later became a shipping executive. And her mother, Maria Luisa Yvonne Rada de Vint Schiaparelli, was a socialite. Nailed it. Good. I didn't want to do that again. Uh, She was discovered as a teenager by Vogue editor Diana Vreeland. She got to be a very popular model in the 1960s. She would make the cover of Vogue in the July 1970 issue and the cover of Time in the December 15th, 1975 issue. The following year, she married her first husband, James Randall. He was a rivet manufacturer. They would divorce in 1978, though they had one daughter, Starlight Melody Randall. (laughs) Sorry, I'm sorry. It's not. It's it's not fair to make fun of someone's name, but damn, celebrities and their kids. Yeah, it could have been worse. But My Little Pony got really popular, so it's okay. Um, <laughs> it's true. It does sound like a My Little Pony character. She would marry her second husband, Aaron Richard Golub, in 1982. They would divorce in 1987. Her early film roles would include Lucino Visconti's Death in Venice 19, in 1971. She was in Cabaret in 1972. Uh, she would also be in Barry Lyndon in 1975. She would not debut on Broadway until 2001 in a revival for Design for Living. Um, and more recently, she played Lady Capulet in the Garrick Theater production of Romeo and Juliet. Her appearance on The Muppet Show was her second television appearance, and it had been 11 years since the first one. Um, oh, wow. But she went on to have a lot of other guest roles or short roles in a variety of other TV series. Unfortunately, she was the oldest of two daughters, but she she lost her younger sister on the first flight that hit the Twin Towers on September 11th. Oh, wow. As far as I can tell, she is still alive and well as of this recording, and I hope that continues to be the case for a long time. She was a lovely guest for this episode. Before we get into the episode, we do have some new faces. We have some big new faces. Let's see. The first one to show up, Lou Zealand, the world-famous boomerang fish thrower. 
built by Dave Goles and uh, Amy Van Gilder. So he's a whatnot in this episode, but they liked him so much they're going to build a permanent version of him and bring him back. He's uh, played by Jerry Nelson. We have Louis Kazagger, also played by Jerry Nelson, who is uh, designed by a woman named Mari Kessel. Um, we've never mentioned her. She was a builder at the workshop starting in 1974. She worked on Sex and Violence, Land of Gorch, Emmett Otter, and The Muppet Show, uh, where she helped develop The Look of Piggy and also uh, co-directed the initial development of the characters and tech for The Dark Crystal, um, but left Henson in 81, but she won an Emmy for her work on the show. So just thought I'd mention her. Uh, Louis Gazagger is the Muppet version of Howard Cosell, to pay and all. And then this is the first appearance of Beauregard, the janitor. Now... We don't actually see, we don't meet Beauregard. This is very Muppet, right? We don't meet him. He's just in a number, but we're going to meet him soon. This keeps happening. Um, but Beauregard is designed by the great Michael Frith and performed by Dave Goals. This is Goals kind of like, um, this is Goals' second big character, right? Like he, he find I think now that Gonzo's up and running and he's got that down, they're like, okay, cool. Let's give Dave another like fairly big character. You're going to notice as we go on that Bo was a little slow. The very beloved Beauregard, the janitor. Beloved by everyone except George, let's be honest. Poor George. I bet George hates that mother. Anyway. I feel like George hates a lot of people. <laughs> he loves his like mop, if, though. If we track this along a Pokemon evolution, George just turns into Oscar the Grouch at some point. Oh, Marisa Berenson, 35 seconds of curtain, Miss Berenson. We have our cold open and... Uh, Marisa, right? It's Marisa, not Marissa. I believe it is Marisa. She's been given a gift by the Muppet Show of some alligator luggage. And of course, they're actually living alligators because it's the Muppets. I'm going to be honest. She seemed kind of stiff in this open. She was. No. <laughs> yeah, she did. I, like, I later on in the episode, blows it out of the park. But in this initial one, I was like a little like, oh, okay. Well, okay. I will tell you. We did. She did this first little bit. Same reaction that you had. My wife turns to me and goes, what does she do? And I go, she's an actor. And she goes, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so it was like because she felt the same thing that she was very stiff in the in the cold open. But it was a very it's very strange. And then she said, where's she from? And that's when we Googled it and found out she was from New York and not from, you know, Lisbon or something. I, yeah, I I tend to watch the episode before writing the bio just so I can try to enjoy yeah. it on its own merits, but I was so sure that she was French. Oh, Scooter, who does all this luggage belong to? Oh, didn't you know? It's a gift to you from the show. Now, wait a minute. This isn't some kind of weird Muppet luggage that's going to blow up or turn into cheese like everything else on this strange show. Dude, you're not wrong. We thought she was British. <laughs> like, we, we didn't know where she was from. Belgian, Latvian, I have no idea, but she does not sound like she's from New York. Although you're right, she may sound like she's from very, very old money, upper class New York. None of my New York friends are like that, so I don't know. Hmm. Now, in the opening credits, we're back to the pre-established chorus lines. So I'm going to keep track of that because that was weird. It was just a little blip, but hopefully but we'll see if that comes back. My, I don't think my daughters weren't pleased that Kermit kind of came in and took Gonzo's thunder. As Gonzo comes in and he's going to he's going to do his trumpet and instead Kermit shows up with his trumpet and blows Gonzo away. And uh, I don't know. It's kind of rude. Just a bit. Micromanaging. That's what that is. Thank you. Thank you. And welcome again to the Muppet Show, where tonight's special guest star is the beautiful international film star, Miss Marisa Berenson. But first, on our show, we've done traditional dances from many countries, but never Russia. 
Well, tonight their luck has run out. So they come out and they perform a song called Red Pig's Dance. Um, this is one of the songs that is written for the Muppet Show. Uh, so yes, for the opening number, we we do get to meet some Russian pigs who perform a red pig's dance, which doesn't sound anything like the Peter Pan song, but made me think of it when I heard the title. I was wondering where they were going with it. Different red, more acceptable red. Especially during the Cold War. Written by Muppet Show musical associate Derek Scott. It, it does continue my thought for like, these are stand-ins for acceptable alternate ethnicities, but you're, you might be right. It might just be a humanist, Ben. Um... This is weird. They don't sing any real words. They sing mock Russian. That might have been why Kermit let them know at the beginning that they they dodged the bullet long enough. I mean, it's not like, you know, it's like czarist Russia, czarist Russia, right? Mm. You know, pre-revolution Russia, but with the, you know, with the tall furry hats and shit. But like I, I, I don't know. It was weird because they like come out and actually we had the subtitles on on Disney Plus and it actually said like in mock Russian. <laughs> They're just making noises. It was a very strange number. There are more strange numbers to come. Yeah, this is I, I like this episode a lot. It, it started kind of slow, but as we're getting up, we're actually about to meet New Zealand, which was New Zealand named after Lou Grade. I think a little bit. It's a kind of a pun on his name. Yeah. Kermit is approached by New Zealand, who has a boomerang fish act that he wants to show, which we saw a Pinkerton last episode, and maybe it was just for Liberace, but I'm wondering how easy it is for people to just wander onto the Muppet set. I think we've established it's pretty easy. Yeah. And then Miss Piggy shows up for, I, I guess this is our main backstage story for the night. <laughs> yeah, 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 it is. <laughs> yeah. She's very grateful to Kermit for letting her be in charge of the closing sketch. Which was a bold choice on Kermit's part, but I think he had to give her something. She's named the sketch The Wedding, uh, which Game of Thrones fans might be kind of nervous because there's no way yeah. a piggy wedding isn't violent. Spoilers, it will be. Oh, of course. But Piggy is legit trying to trick Kermit into marrying her. I feel like that wedding gets annulled. I feel like that wedding gets annulled real quick. It's not okay, Piggy. There's so much that Piggy does that's not okay. Yeah, I love her. <laughs> Love her so so much. for our next bit, we get to see our guest star. Marisa comes on and dances to the Borsalino theme with some feather boas. We discussed this briefly before the recording. I feel like they were trying to get stuff past the radar, but it's also kind of bland. I thought it was very bland. Yeah, it's the the Borsalino theme is taken from the 1970s or the 1970 French gangster film of the same name. Yeah, cool little movie. It's weird. Yeah, it, it's because it's done. The, the, the boas are done with kind of the black box technology, right? And superimposed onto her or whatever. It's like two pieces of film. Mm -hmm. Problem is, it it feels like one of their old, you know, remember the old technical sketches? Mm -hmm. It feels like one of those, but with the guest star inserted, but all the guest star does is, like, point at it. She's there to present the feather boas. Like, I guess she kind of does a little bit of a dance with them, 
there was the, it sort of had this good, like, I think she was superimposed onto it or something, because you could see through her, if I remember yes. correctly. Yeah, it, it has to do with the opacity of the two pieces of film, mm. which is it's completely fine for effects like this. It's how, how, just how it kind of has to be. Mm. It just felt like a technical sketch, but it was a weird choice for me. Like, I liked her too, but this wasn't, this didn't showcase anything. <laughs> She just kind of like she kind of dances. There's one cute little moment where she kind of follow has them like follow her like follow the leader style, mm-hmm. which is kind of cute. This reminded me of uh, was it Florence Henderson that came out and just like sang like a like a Judy Collins ass song for her number so. and and it was like all right this is a little sleepy. Mm-hmm. This is when my four five year old starts like crawling on the furniture <laughs> and trying to get at daddy's lightsabers. I, I just feel like there are going to be swings that you don't see coming. Here's the problem when you're lightsaber fighting your kid. You can't hit them. They are trying to hit you. You are constantly on the defensive because you can't like reach out and just smack them across the head with it. But they're trying to do that to you. If you can dodge her and she can dodge a lightsaber, we go backstage again. I tell you, it's terrific. Yeah, you see, I throw the fish into the air. They sail away and then they come back to me. Yeah, well, but I, I don't care about boomerang fish acts. Oh, you will! They're coming back! And uh, Kermit is about as interested as you imagine Kermit would be. The real pivot here is that we see that Piggy has hired a real minister. Yeah, yeah. And... Well, there's a, a great joke, too, where, where Kermit's like, Piggy, what are my lines in this thing? And she's like, oh, you only have one line. And he's like, I do? And she's like, exactly. Nice little wordplay. I think the thing that works so well about this is Piggy can't be subtle. No. Like, she doesn't, if she was more deft, Kermit would never see this coming, but she is dropping hints left and right because she needs to be witnessed. As we'll see, he goes through with it as far as he possibly can because he wants to keep believing it's not true, but he he knows what's going on deep down. (laughs) Kermit's in a deep state of denial. There's a funnier context in which he's like, Piggy, you're no longer starring in that last bit. It's me and Miss Mousy. (laughs) She would kill them both. She, she would. That would not be. Uh, I was going to say that'd be like the end of Meet the Feebles, but you've never seen Meet the Feebles. I, I really need to. But trust me, it'll be like the end of Meet the Feebles. Kermit, it's just a simple comedy sketch. Oh, yeah, well, I know that. A comedy sketch, Kermit. It's not as if he were a real minister. So she tells Kermit it's not like I, I, I hired a real minister, and then she comes in and there's a pig minister. See, it's just not, it's a pig minister. Pigs are just people. <laughs> here's the other here's the other reason why I think it's pigs are just people. What has happened this season, more than the first two for sure, is Miss Piggy is the star of the show. Mm-hmm. She's flat out the star of the show. She's the most famous Muppet in the world. She's the reason people are tuning in. She's the Fonzie of the Muppet show. So... <laughs> I dated myself like a mother right there, but still, he's the, she's the Fonzie of the Muppet Show. Couldn't even reference something from the 90s. I couldn't even say Kramer. I had to go with Fonzie. Was Kramer the Fonzie? I didn't know Kramer's the Fonzie. Kramer's the Fonzie, yeah. Hmm. So she's the biggest star in the show, so, it, so they kind of lean into the pigs more now, just because Miss Piggy is the most famous part of the show, and they're supporting her. So it's, it's interesting, because we got one of our biggest new characters is Annie Sue. I want you to hold on to this um, piggy tricking Kermit into getting married thing from when we get to the Muppets Take Manhattan. I believe it. Somebody's getting married today. Hello, sports fans. This is Louis Gazagger welcoming you to the wild world of Muppet sports. 
So from here, we go to Muppet Sports, where we get to meet Louis Kazager, our very first Muppet Sports, and he's covering a wig race, um, which, is he supposed to be a taper? He's just a Muppet. <laughs> like, he's, I mean, he's definitely not a Gelfling, he's not a Skeksis, but the way that, that nose is sort of, like, drooping out there, I'm like, he, he looks a little bit like a taper. He looks like an anteater. Yeah, like, a, just a little bit. He is a parody of Howard Cosell, the great sportscaster, with the way he talks. Not quite the way he looks. Howard Cosell did not look like an anteater. This was funny because then at the end, his own wig and Howard Cursell was famous for wearing a toupee and pretending like he didn't. So can we talk about the fact that there was a Coolio wig there? Like it was just, <laughs> I wasn't expecting it. It's the wrong decade, but they legit had like dangerous minds Coolio wig <laughs> in the race. That's a very specific Coolio. This is full on dangerous minds. Weird Al didn't properly get the rights to parody the song Coolio wig. Muppet Sports makes me nostalgic when I hear the music and hear his voice. I don't think I actually... This this running sketch isn't part of my recollection of the Muppets at all. Speaking of dull, not this being dull, but the earlier thing being dull. UK spots. I think eventually we're going to... I hope eventually we're going to find a better way to, to implement Robin. Yeah. But I think Robin is just there to be our saccharine, saccharine frog. For now, yeah. Um, we, we've got our UK spot. Featuring the Robin the Frog singing a song called Someone to Watch Over Me. Somebody I'm longing to see. I hope that she turns out to be someone who watch over me. It's a song by George and Ira Gershwin uh, for the Broadway musical OK. Uh, it's become a jazz standard. It's I could see the song being livened up elsewhere, but I think that it's... Robin is supposed to be that cute kid that winks at the camera, spouts off a one-lighter, but in this case it's all supposed to be very endearing and adorable. As often as not, it feels sort of out of place. I don't like the orchestration of the number. Mm. This is, like, too low tempo. Yeah, I mean, I know they're trying to stretch it to two minutes. So maybe that's why, because it has to be like exactly two minutes. Maybe they can't do it any faster. But yeah, I just felt like it was it, it dragged. It it doesn't it interrupts the flow of the episode. Speed, follow my lead. Oh, how I need someone who watch over. It just, and I would say that there's a lot of UK spots that do do that, that interrupt the flow of the episode because they're so, remember the, you know, like the dance hall numbers and mm -hmm. stuff, right? Uh, but those tended to be more up-tempo, at least. Mm -hmm. This is not a bummer, but just saccharine and, but, but even, I can handle it being sweet and endearing because it's coming from Robin, that's what he is. I can, I can totally handle that. If it just had a little more pizzazz to it, it doesn't have any pizzazz. It just kind of lays there. There's not a lot to say about it. No, that's all we need to say. Luckily, the next section sells the episode and our guest star very well. <laughs> uh, we go backstage again to the dressing room and Piggy's there and she asks Marisa to help tighten her girdle for the upcoming wedding sketch. 
this this is where I I was very like Marisa is solid. I think she's great. It's so great to see her in here. Just sort of she went from being kind of kind of wooden to sort of turning into puck, and I'm here for it. Yeah. yeah. Frank is in rare form when he starts screaming. <laughs> yes, when he's trying, when she's got her uh, foot in the middle of Piggy's back and she's trying to get the girdle. <laughs> she's trying she, to. Help. She says like she. Well, Piggy even says like. Tighter, dear. Tighter. 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 I gotta go down three sizes. <laughs> going to an awful lot of trouble. How long does this sketch last? Till death do us part. <laughs> All right, now listen, kid. I just. On the oh. count of three, pull. Ready? One, two. Oh, Marisa, you're wanted on stage in a minute. Oh, my goodness. I've got to get dressed here. Hold. Scooter comes in to call her for the next uh, number. And she hands the girdle strings to Scooter. And him and Pinky go flying off screen. <laughs> just, just, so good. Oh, very, so good. They say, yeah, we need you for the next number. But she's not in the next number. I mean, she does have a wardrobe cha- wardrobe change for her final number, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess. But uh, oh, that visual of Scooter and Piggy just slingshotting over uh, <laughs> off the screen. Oh, that's, that's what I'm here bit. for. That's what I'm here for. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we we go to Kermit conducting a chorus line, sort of like he did for Temptation, but with a different pig and a different outcome. This is actually uh, <laughs> the train station, the rhyming song. This is. It feels like another take on that, but they are. Yeah. Sort of parodying uh, Do Re Mi from The Sound of Music. Do a deer, a female deer. Ray, a drop of golden sun. Me, a name I call myself. Fa, a long, long way to run. Uh, it's Kermit, Annie Sue, Scooter, Salamander, Robin. <laughs> Sorry, a salamander. Randomly. Beauregard and Fozzie. Here's the debut of Beauregard. Like I was saying, like, we, we here's his debut, but we haven't met him yet. Mm-hmm. They do call him Bo. They're doing Do Re Mi, but Fozzie keeps missing his cue, and then he ends up throwing off the whole thing. And then they end it by basically trolling Kermit. Yep. <laughs> like, by the end, they're just doing it to annoy Kermit. <laughs> To the point where he shoves them off stage. I mean, if you can't beat them, join them. Go a deer, a female deer. Go a deer, a female deer. Hey, a hop of hope. A name I call myself. Be bold. A beer, a female beer. Go away. Play a drop of golden all right, let's get to it. The peak of the episode. Uh, and now, uh, to uh, bring a note of culture to the show, uh, is the set changed yet? Yeah, it's okay, Frog. Uh, okay, here is the lovely and talented Miss Marisa Berenson. The peak of this week. Actually, wait, no, I should I should take that back, because it's vying for peak of the episode. But we get to see our guest star. Marisa sings a song called You're Always Welcome at Our House, uh, which Shel Silverstein, appropriately enough, wrote. It's a folk song from 1962. Well, a man came to our house, our house, our house. A man came to our house to sell us some brooms. So we asked him to come in, and we hit him with a hammer. And we hit him in the closet in my father's room. It's just, (laughs) she's a serial killer. Her dad's a serial killer. Her dad's, like, raising her to be a serial killer. 
but I don't know. There's a show that I watched in the early aughts, which I shouldn't have been watching at that age, but what was I watching at that age that I was supposed to be watching at that age? Uh, there was a show called Wonder Chosen, which used puppets and was very clearly influenced by the puppet show or by the Muppet show, but yeah, yes, it was. It's also significantly more transgressive. This bit comes straight out of Wonder Chosen, or maybe Wonder Chosen comes straight out of this bit, because she progressively shows people that she's hidden in her closet and put in her freezer and poisoned and all sorts of other things, and eventually she slips into the second person and says that this is something that's going to happen to you. Yes, you're always welcome in our house, and we hope you will stay. I love this sketch. The horror on my wife's face. <laughs> Did the girls get it? After the first verse, I don't know if the girls got it or not. They thought it was funny. <laughs> so the song, just a song on its own, without the puppets, without the visuals, is, yeah, someone that, like, whenever someone comes to our house, we incapacitate them, tie them up, and stash them somewhere. We will ask you to come in, and we will take you in the kitchen. We will put you in the oven until you are But you're always welcome in our house. Anytime. At least a couple of those people died. Like H.H. H. Holmes shit. Yeah. And then you add to this this visual, she's dressed up like a little girl. She's got She pigtails. sings in a little girl voice. She's got pigtails. So for every verse, they give you a visual of that Muppet either shoved in the freezer or at a trap door in the floor. My wife, actually, we were watching it. She goes, oh, there's a trap door. <laughs> it's just like she knew. She saw it. And she's like, oh, someone's, something's coming out of there. <laughs> and it's just this funny, upbeat, cheery song about this f- family, apparently, who kidnaps anyone who comes to their house and <laughs> stashes them somewhere in their home. Oh, I love the sketch so much. It's a horror movie. It's a horror movie. It's a very dark, it's a pitch black comedy. It really is. Like the the, the one in the basement's a little kid and he like pops up out of the basement and he's like got, he's wrapped in like rope. You expect Pennywise to pull him down, you know? I've got a warped sense of humor and this goes straight into it. So this is just something that's going to stick with me regardless. This is so good. This is so good. Oh, it's great. Next up is not so good. Well, it's it's a Muppet wedding. This is what you're asking for if you're getting a Muppet wedding. Yes. Uh, we go back to the canteen and Gladys is serving Lou a liver sandwich with a fly on the side. He likes the fly, not the sandwich. He's a complicated man, that uh, Lou Zealand. He looks so weird in this. He looks so weird because like... Like I said earlier, he was a in this. He's just a whatnot that they created for this episode. The New Zealand I'm used to is a much more refined puppet Mm -hmm. because it said once they decided to make him a character, they went back and built a real version of him that's much better designed. So Gladys serves the sandwich. She then sees the Swedish chef doing his best to create a wedding cake with raw onions. You know, I have to take one look at this wedding cake and I feel like crying. Heaven knows why. Oh, well, that's for the cake and the onions. You what? Onions. Raw 
onions in a wedding cake? Oh, yeah. Onions are very good for the scene issues. Yeah, it clears the head. Yeah. And this cake will clear the church. <laughs> Complete with the, the Muppet wedding cake, uh, we see the two cake toppers, which I just want to, would have wanted to have as action figures as a kid. But uh, we, we see... They made these. I'm sure. We see Kermit in a tux, and we see a small figurine of Miss Piggy in in a wedding dress, but just because the Miss Piggy figurine is small does not mean that it isn't heavy. Uh, So heavy, in fact, that the cake just sort of collapses inward. Unnecessary joke, I think, but, you know. Yeah, but, I mean, in in tandem with her needing to shrink three sizes, there is that theme. And Scooter... Scooter. Scooter's the nephew of the person (laughs) that owns that theater. Scooter has leverage that supersedes things like plot armor or any number of other things because his uncle owns the theater. So right before the wedding sketch, and a trick that Kermit should have seen coming a mile away, uh, Scooter comes up with a little stack of papers and asks Kermit to sign. Hey, Kermit, there's this dear little old lady in the audience who wants your autograph for her sick grandson. Sign here. Oh, okay, yeah. Which, of course, Kermit's going to do because Kermit is a kind-hearted frog. Sometimes. Sometimes. Kermit signs the wedding license before he realizes what it is, which I feel like would be hard to prove in court, but if you could, should just get it thrown out. Hey, listen, is everything ready for this dumb wedding sketch? Sure, the set's on stage, everyone's in costume, you mm-hmm. sign the license, uh, you sign the autograph. <laughs> oh, nothing. And Kermit, like, does a double take, and he's like, what do you mean? And then he just gets shoved on stage. <laughs> it's like the whole theater is in on it. I think Scooter is a chaos Muppet that's lying to everyone else in that space, but knows very well who he is. Maybe Scooter has been reading the papers, and Scooter realizes that Piggy's the bigger star, so if he's going to attach himself to somebody, (laughs) he should be on Piggy's side, because Kermit's on the way down, Piggy's on the way up, and Scooter's like, I'm with the pig now. I just, as soon as we get the Muppet production of Othello, we know that Scooter's going to be Iago. Oh, he's absolutely Iago. Who would be be Othello, though? Rolf? It'd either be Rolf or the chef, because you need to have, like, someone with hands. I'm going to make a bold statement. I think it's time for Kermit the Frog to be the lead character in a Muppet thing again. (laughs) Uh, 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 Well, today, folks, uh, Miss Piggy has prepared a silly wedding sketch. Uh, Naturally, it's just for fun. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. What is it? Can we start soon? I'm saying Vespers at St. Anne's in half an hour. The curtain opens on a church interior. Uh, with Rolf playing the organ, and a group of pigs sits on one side, and a group of frogs, which I'm pretty sure from the Frog Prince, if I remember correctly. It's just the it's just the whole cast of the Frog Prince. Robin's wearing, like, a scout uniform. And Fozzie sit on the other side. And, of course, Fozzie's going to be there for Kermit. <laughs> that's, how, that's how Robin dresses, by the way, for a wedding, is his scout uniform. It's the closest thing he has to, like, formal clothing. It's like he's wearing his dress blues or something. <laughs> yeah. Kermit enters the scene, he's a little bit confused, but he goes to the altar anyway, because, you know, the show must go on. And Marisa and Animal watch from the wings as the not-real, real wedding ceremony begins. You sure this is going to be funny? Trust me. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to join this pig and this frog in holy wedlock. 
it keeps going and it, you see that that slow realization dawn on Kermit that this might not be a sketch. I mean, he already suspects when he goes out there, but it could just be confirmation bias. Maybe he's maybe he's paranoid. He wants to give the benefit of the doubt. You just want to Nick, 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 you know, I'm a fan of Miss Piggy Lee, but when would you ever, ever give her the benefit of the doubt? Fair point. It's, it's a fair point. Do you, Piggy, take this frog to be your lawfully wedded husband? And do you, Kermit, take this pig to be your lawfully wedded wife? I... I... I want to introduce to you the amazing Lou Zealand and his boomerang fish! Who immediately starts throwing fish all over the place and giving us that full... Classic Muppet Chaos as Piggy chases Kermit around. <laughs> and Kermit is probably running for his life. <laughs> Kermit is uh, he's, he's being asked to say his one line, which is I do of his wedding vows. And instead he goes, ladies and gentlemen, Blue Zealand and his amazing flying fish! Which, that's <laughs> the way to think on your flippers. No, see, exactly. It's the only way he knows that he, it's the only way he can come up with to get out of it. Is to just blow up the sketch. And he had told New Zealand that he would only have him on if hell froze over. This was hell freezing over. This was, I will marry this pig when hell freezes over. It is time for New Zealand and his amazing flying fish. Great, great way to end the episode. It's so good. And then we, we come back out. And Miss Piggy is still after Kermit. Because by hook, by crook or concussion, she's getting that frog. Oh, he's not surviving this. Oh, no. He attempts to hide in Statler and Waldorf's box, offering them tickets for next week's show. And they just throw him out of the balcony. <laughs> because... <laughs> I forgot about that. Because why would you be helpful? Why? Uh, uh, so good. This is great moment. Yeah, they, they, he says, can I hide out with you guys? And then he ducks back down, obviously, so they can do a switch off to give it to from a frog puppet to a frog doll. <laughs> and then they just launch him. But Statler and Waldorf have been threatened by Miss Piggy before, though, haven't they? Oh, they don't mess with the pig. They're scared. Of, they're terrified of the pig. This this episode was weird because like it starts off so slow and I was like, oh, this is kind of lame. And the last 10 minutes are so funny. It's such a great episode. It's just that second half of it. I don't even know if it's a great episode. I just think the second half is so good that it makes it one. Well, the wedding scene's something that they, they're building to the entire time. So that's a slow burn. But the, the thing out of left field was the song and just how dark that was. Next time. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? So next time we've got episode, wow, okay, episode 311 with uh, a very important guest star for me, Miss uh, Raquel Welch. I got a story to go along with her. And then uh, episode 312 with James Coco. Uh, Raquel Welch, it's a, it's a good one. It's a good one. Uh, anyway, I'm Chad. I'm Nick. And thank you for listening.
feat of lunatic daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podolitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. Hey, if you guys let me hide here, I'll give you tickets to next week's show. <laughs> <laughs>